0: Good to be here, good to be in the Lord's presence this morning, or what? Amen. If you're new with us, I want you to know we've been going through the book of uh, Mark, I started to say John, through the book of Mark together, 16 chapters, 16 weeks, doing our best to look at one chapter per week. It's not truly realistic to cover everything in one of uh, these gospel chapters in a whole week. Or in just one week or in one sermons. But that's what we're trying to do. And this morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to look at that or open that with me. Mark chapter 8. You can follow along on the screen as well. But as we go through, you'll see that Jesus again uses a common phrase. He talks about having eyes to see and ears to hear. And how sometimes people don't. I mean, they do have eyeballs. They have ears, but they don't see or hear or listen. And I want to begin this morning, if you would, would you bow your head with me and let me just lead us to pray, God help us not be that way. So Lord, that is our prayer, that you help us to be good at being receptive, moldable, pliable, letting you help us let our eyes be open to see what you want us to see in your word, letting our ears be clear and good at not just hearing, but really listening to what you want us to hear. And applying it to our lives, letting us be different people. Not just to accumulate information. I mean, that's sometimes really interesting and great. But more importantly, Lord, help us to apply your word to our lives. honor you in the details of our life, The way we live, the way we serve you, the way we function. Not just on Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday as well. So, Lord, that is our prayer. Help us to hear and see what you want us to today. And we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children together said, Amen. Amen. All right, let's look at Mark chapter 8. Um, I, I don't have time to go through the whole thing as thoroughly as I'd like, so let me just summarize the first 11 or so verses. Jesus feeds the 4,000. Now, more famously, he just as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Most of us have heard and know that story. Well, very similar, similarly, he feeds 4,000 at this point with seven loaves. And so the Bible goes through that story, but I want to pick it up Uh, in verse 11, after that is over, and as we look at what happens next, Jesus does this. He does it twice, and it's basically this. (sighs) a big sigh. And you'll see it, and one of them it's clear, the other one I think maybe is implied, but but a a big sigh, maybe even a roll of the eyes, um, something along that line, we don't know for sure, but he is, I think, troubled or frustrated. I don't know exactly the right word there. First of all, it's because the Pharisees demand a sign. They've been given all kinds of signs. They've just seen 4,000 people fed by just a little tiny bit of bread. He, they've seen him walk on water. They've seen him heal people over and over and, and cast out demons. And yet they demand a sign because their hearts are hard. And he goes oh, like that. And then with his own disciples, those that he's pouring into, that he's handpicked to change the world through, he, again, I think, sighs because of their failure to understand what he's trying to talk about. He wants to teach them a lesson, and they totally miss the point. And I I don't know if you've been like that before, but I have many times. And that's what happens, and so he sighs. Let's look at it together. Verse 11 begins like this. The Pharisees, this is right after the feeding of the 4,000. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, as if the sign of the feeding of the 4,000 was not a clear sign. They want something bigger than that. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. All right, so on the heels of that, verse 14, they're in the boat. Now, they had forgotten, the the disciples, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, and the yeast or the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not understand or remember when I woke, or when I broke the five loaves for the um, yeah? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12, 12 baskets full. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven, again, baskets. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? In other words, don't you? Why would you worry about your physical need for bread when I have just multiplied. He didn't just ration it in a beautiful, you know, creative way. He multiplied. He miraculously took this much bread and turned it into this much bread. And yet they're worried about, oh, we don't have enough bread. What are we going to do? And and he's wanting them to understand there's so much more important things on the table than that. Now, a couple of things I want us to notice here also, very specifically. In fact, I put them in your bulletin. If you want to fill in the blanks, here you go. Um, First of all, We need to recognize in this story that it is important to never... Somebody say the word never. Never Never give up on people or on your mission. Jesus may have sighed. (sighs) You know, he may have done that. Maybe he even rolled his eyes. We don't know that. Maybe he was, you know, frustrated in this or that way. But he never threw in the towel. He never gave up on anyone, even his enemies. You remember that? I mean, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he was on a cross, he never gave up on his enemies, let alone on his disciples, whom he loved dearly, who did disappoint and who did make a lot of mistakes, just like you and I, but he didn't give up on them. He did not give up on them, and we should not give up on others as well. Nor did he give up on his mission, which he clearly said in Luke 19.10, uh, Luke is to seek and to save the lost. It's a search and rescue mission. That's why he came to this earth to seek and save you and me and everyone that is lost. And we need to, in a similar way, make sure that we don't give up. Don't give up. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm tempted to give up in various contexts in my life. Yesterday was a hard day for me. It's a long story. But in short, I was tempted to give up in a couple of different ways. It was a hard day for me yesterday. But I need to remember, you need to remember, all of us need to remember Galatians 6, 9 and other verses and stories like this. Where in Galatians 6, 9, the Bible says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we, what? No. Do not give up. If we don't give up, hang in there, persevere, have endurance. Trust the Lord to walk you through this situation. So, never give up on people or your mission. And secondly, you know, maybe on a lighter side, I think this story can help us recognize the importance or the uh, the significance and opportunity to look for and pray for opportunities. To look and pray for opportunities. Jesus was creative. If you look at this story, you see it. It's really cool. He was an opportunistic guy. He had just taken, and let me just figuratively show you, he'd taken something like this and turned it into something like this. I mean, like a mountain of bread from one little slice of bread, basically. I mean, actually seven loaves into enough to feed 4,000 people. But he had done that And he therefore took advantage of that very poignant moment with his disciples and then talked about yeast. Now, that was not coincidental that he talked about the yeast of the Pharisees right after he did that, I don't think. I think he's trying to be creative and use that situation and model for us our need to look for opportunities. Look for opportunities to talk about spiritual things with people. Now, his his disciples, I mean, didn't get it as he was trying to talk about, hey, be careful about the stinking thinking that the Pharisees often have, that negative and pessimistic approach to things, and they're always trying, trying to trap him and all those things. He said, be careful about that. And they didn't get it. They thought he was talking about literal yeast and bread. And, oh, what are we going to eat now? And he said, no, you're missing the point. But I think what we can learn from this is the importance of seizing the day. Seize opportunities. Look for them and pray for them. Say, God, help me. When it all comes down at the end of, uh, end of all, when we take our last breath, all that's going to matter is eternal stuff. All the physical things, earthly things, they are not going to matter. And so we need to say, Lord, help me to constantly look for ways to talk about such things with others around me. To live out Second Timothy 4.2 that says, Preach the word and be prepared in season and out of season to correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Or how about in Deuteronomy 6, when God's talking to all of us as parents. He says, look, I've given you these important commands. And here's here's what he said about these commands. I want you to have these on your heart. And verse 7 says, impress them on your children. Look, soccer practice and ballet and whatever else, all these things that we get busy doing are fine. They're not wrong. But make sure you focus on the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. He said impress these things, the commands of God, command these commandments. Impress them on your children and do it creatively. Look at what he says. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you, go, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, when you play in the park or when you wrestle with your boy on the living room floor or when you... Go fishing or go on a road trip or whatever. Look for opportunities to talk about spiritual things because when you breathe your last breath, that's all that's going to matter. The only thing that will matter are the spiritual things in life. I mean, I, I enjoy the Broncos. I enjoy Kansas State University, um, football and basketball. But you know what? None of that really matters, especially on season, years like this when they're not very good. But even if they were doing well, it wouldn't matter. It doesn't matter. What really matters are the spiritual things in life. So we need to focus on that. All right, let's continue. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. But they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. We could talk for a long time about this. If you have more questions, please, I'd love to sit and talk with you about it. Or you can ask one of the elders other questions. In short, this is a rather confusing passage. Uh, For one, we see some parallels to what what Rob Gleghorn preached about last week, again with a man that was a deaf mute that needed to be healed, that Jesus did heal. Um, These are the only two times in the Gospels that these two stories are talked about. There are several interesting things here that we don't understand. Let me just tell you this. Sometimes you'll hear people, maybe a pastor, maybe somebody else, that says, oh, well, that means X, Y, Z. Definitively they know... And I'll just tell you, there are some things that happen here that we don't understand. The Bible does not tell us why, he u- why Jesus used spit. Why did he do that? People have theories, but I don't know for sure. We know spittle was thought to have some medicinal qualities at that time. Maybe it was that. Maybe there was something else. But Scripture does not tell us. So we're left to wonder about that. We're also left to wonder, why did he... Why did Jesus uh, lead the man out of that area? Why not heal him right there? Why why take him out? Why lead him by the hand? Why not let one of the disciples lead him if somebody needed to lead him? On that one, I kind of theorize maybe Jesus wanted to show us, hey, everybody needs to be willing to get their hands dirty. Everybody needs to be willing to bend over and pick up the trash or clean the toilet or whatever. I've often thought, as I've heard before, if serving is beneath you, Leadership is beyond you. You ever heard that quote? That's an awesome quote. That is so true. And Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost, but he also came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. So maybe that was part of it. We also don't know why Jesus, um, um, uh, let's see, what else? Oh, we don't know why he healed in two stages. This is the only time in all of the healings that we see in Scripture that Jesus healed in stages. Why not, why not instantaneously? Was this too difficult for him? He had to try a second time, like it didn't work the first time? No, that's not what it was. We know that. But why did he choose to do this in stages? We don't know. There are different theories about it. But ultimately, the bottom line is that Jesus can heal anybody of anything at any time, however he wants to do. And he still today does miraculous, amazing things. But he also sometimes says no. Or sometimes things may take time. As they did in this situation. We don't know. Ultimately we know that God is going to heal all of us. Perfectly and eternally. When we get to heaven. But on this earth. It's kind of a maybe, maybe not. Depending on the situation. And we have to trust him. In these moments. Well there's a lot that could be said. But let's move on from there. Verse 27. This is really powerful. And Jesus went on with his disciples. To the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And they, the disciples, told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, and I think he looked them in the eye, and he said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, as he often was bold, spoke up. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to not tell anyone about that. You know, friends, it's not enough to know what Scott Park or any other pastor or the church in general believes about Jesus. What matters is what do you believe? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's what matters. Jesus is not going to meet you at the pearly gates, you know, figuratively speaking. He's not going to meet you and say, tell me what your parents taught you. Tell me about what your church believed. About the church you joined and were active at. No, he's going to say, what did you live out? What do you believe about me? It's the most important question of humanity. What do you believe? What do you say about Jesus? And I would tell you, you need to each, we need to each move from curiosity to commitment, from admiration to adoration. A lot of us get stuck on the first of those two words. We need to move to absolute surrender and worship of Almighty God and be like Peter who nailed it. Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. I know who you are, and I worship you. I am committed to you. And we need to all be in that same boat with him. And if you've never taken that step before we close today, I pray you will. Today is the day. There were people that did so last week. I pray that you'll do so again this week if that's you. Maybe you need to recommit to that, refocus in that way. All right, verse 31. Let's continue, though, because look at what happens next. This is amazing. Peter's just nailed it. You're the Christ. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter who has just nailed it, said the perfect answer to the question. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow! See, Peter did not understand why Jesus had to die. Why would Jesus have to suffer and die? Peter didn't like that, didn't want that, and so he leaned into his own understanding rather than leaning into the Lord's understanding or what Jesus had just tried to teach him, had been teaching him. And he, he rebuked Jesus. He told him, no, not on my watch. That's not happening. And Jesus rebuked him. And I think there are several things we can learn from this brief encounter here that are really powerful Two things, two ways we need to be like Jesus and one way we need to be like Peter. The two about Jesus are this. We need to be bold like Jesus, who as much as he, as he loved Peter, loved him. This is one of his closest friends on the planet. He told him straight like he needed to hear. He said, you have the things of earth in mind, not the things of heaven. You need to get behind me. You are in the role of Satan in this moment. That's powerful. Look at what he went on to say, verse 34. This, right after that, this exchange has happened, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, and this is for Peter's sake as well as everybody else, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world And forfeit his soul. What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man, will I, in other words he's saying, also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father and with the holy angels. Jesus hit Peter between the eyes with truth he was bold. We need to learn to be bold and speak the truth. Now we also need to understand as Jesus has authored all of scripture that of course uh, we only have the we only have the words on the paper. So if you want, you can read that and add your own voice inflection and make it sound like he's really being mean, aggressive like in your face Peter, get behind me you or you know what we can do that but I'm pretty confident that's not the tone Jesus used. Because we have to look at Scripture in context. And when you do that, you know that Jesus also modeled and led, uh, authored Scripture to say things like, we need to speak the truth in love. In love. Ephesians five or 4 tells us that. Or in Colossians 4, where God led Paul to write, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone seasoned with salt, full of grace. God's Word tells us His kindness is what leads us to repentance. Yes, we need to be bold, but we need to do so in a kind and loving way. Making making the gospel attractive, it even says in Titus. It is so important for us to get this. So, we need to be like Jesus in that He was bold. We need to be like Jesus in that He was loving. But we also can learn from Peter here, and we need to be humble like Peter. You know, it would have been easy for Peter to get defensive and hurt, wouldn't it? I mean, Jesus just called him out in front of others. Even called him, get behind me, Satan. Like, that. those are harsh words. It would have been easy and pretty common, I think, for a lot of people to say, whoa, well, forget this, then never mind. You just associated me with the devil. I'm out of here. I'm done. Walk away. See you later. A lot of people would probably have been tempted to go down that road, but not Peter. Or maybe he was tempted, but he didn't do that. He stayed with the Lord. He swallowed that big pill. It was not easy, but he was humble. He was humble. He was willing to be rebuked. Anybody in here like to be rebuked? Wait a minute, I'm looking. I don't see a single hand. Nobody likes to be corrected? You don't like to be called out? Nobody? Really? Oh, we got one. One that says, I like it. Okay, I'm going to talk to you. But anyway, because that's a rare thing. That is a rare thing. Nobody, almost nobody likes to be rebuked or called out or, you know, critiqued in such a way. But sometimes we need it. Can I ask another question? How many of you have at times, and probably will in the future as well, need to be called out, rebuked, corrected? All of us. My hand's right there too. All of us. And we need to be like Peter and be humble. Let me show you just a couple. There are so many verses in Scripture about humility. Let me show you a couple that have hit me lately when I've been doing my devotions. Proverbs 26 says, Do you see a man? You could say woman. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. How about Isaiah 5? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Whoa, humble. Be humble. How about Romans 12? Do, you think, do, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. It's our tendency, isn't it? But don't do it. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. How about Proverbs 9? The Bible says, Do not rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Instruct a wise man, you could use the word humble here, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in his learning. You see, to be wise is to be humble. And Jesus rebuked Peter in love. And Peter, to his credit, even though he was out of line and needed to be rebuked, handled it. He swallowed it. He accepted it. He received it and he grew. He learned. He changed. And we need to all learn to follow his example. You know, Peter went on to make a lot more mistakes. This wasn't the last Um, including, you know, even denying Jesus, cursing that he did not know Jesus in Jesus' most difficult moment. And yet, Jesus did not give up on Peter. He did not, uh, he rebuked him when he needed it, but he never gave up on him. He loved him, and, and he may have corrected him, but Peter received forgiveness as well. I think the forgiveness was tied to that humility, The humility came and brought him to a place of repentance and opened him up to forgiveness. Jesus is that way. He will never give up on you just like he never gave up on Peter. The most amazing and incredible thing on this planet is the love and forgiveness of Almighty God demonstrated by Jesus on a cross for you and me, for Peter, but for you and me as well. As we close, you know, last week, um, Heidi Gleghorn was up here leading us into a time of communion. And uh, as I think she called it, she showed us a tiny picture of God's love. Just like a one, one millionth picture of God's love. When she brought her young daughter, Keisha, up on stage. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. And they talked through a difficult emotional issue. And Heidi, as a loving parent, wrapped her arms around her daughter and loved her hugged her, kissed her. And Heidi accurately said, you know, that's really just a tiny little picture of God's love. God's love is so much bigger than what we can ever um, understand or demonstrate. But that was a picture of it. And I want to show you this morning as we close another picture of God's love. If you follow the news, this is not new to you. This is something that happened, well, the first part happened quite some time ago. But about 10 days ago, a woman named Amber Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison for killing an unarmed 26-year-old black man named Botham John, I think it's pronounced John, in his own apartment. She, a white police officer, uh, had had a long day at work. She also actually was having an affair with her married partner. And she came home one night from work and went to her apartment there were multiple floors. She went to the wrong floor. I guess apparently they look all the, very similar. And she apparently went into the wrong one, thinking this is my apartment. Oh, the doors, I left the door open. Well, How did I do that? I don't know. Anyway, so she didn't have to use her key, walked in, and there's this man sitting there, watching television on the couch. Maybe the couch looked similar to hers. I don't know, but she walked in, saw him, and even though he was doing nothing illegal, had his arms in the air, she shot and killed him. Now, obviously, a lot of people turned it into a racial thing. Um, and I, w- there's, I don't have words to explain all of that. I don't know everything about it. But uh, what I do know is that when the sentencing came down, and she was sentenced 10 years in prison for killing Botham John, some of the family members were allowed to stand up in the chair and, um, and talk to her and i want to show you maybe you've seen it but i want to show you what botham's brother who was very tight with his brother what he said watch this
1: i don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've, or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that, but I just, I hope you go to God. With all what all the guilt, all the thing, the bad things you may have done in the past, each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die, just like my brother did. But I see, sh- I, I, personally want the best for you. Can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes.
0: is a picture kind of like what Heidi said last week maybe only one one thousandth or one one millionth actually of God's grand amazing love for us but that's at least a glimpse of what Jesus is saying for you and me as he forgave Peter he wants to forgive you and me and all the rest of us as Bothham's brother turned to the to the judge and said can I, can I give her a hug please? Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock and if anyone will open the door I will come and eat with him and he with me. In other words open the door and he will give you that same hug. A hug that's better than anything you've ever imagined or been able to fathom. He loves you more than you know and as we stand, will you stand with me? As we stand and as we sing right now if you want, if you feel led, would you please respond to to the love of God. Maybe that's to come forward. Maybe it's to stand and surrender with your arms lifted high, but whatever it is, to say, Lord, I love you with all I have. Thank you, thank you, thank you for loving me. Let's respond. Let's sing